The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Rob Stutzman, founder and president of Stutzman Public Affairs, uh, formerly communications, handled communications for Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a longtime observer of California politics, and that's why we want to talk to him today and ask him a few questions and chat with him a bit about what's going on politically in California. And right now, I think the big story out here is the results in the congressional district, the 25th con- congressional district, uh, with Assemblywoman Christy Smith versus Mike Garcia, a newcomer, and Garcia, Republican, Smith, a Democrat. Garcia, the Republican, is up by 12 points, according to the, the uh, Secretary of State's website. I just checked here about an hour ago. 56-44. Now, that's, those are early returns. Um, and there's a lot of mail-in ballots, I think, that remain to be counted, but it looks pretty definitively like it's a Garcia victory. So, Rob, I want to first ask you about what lessons, if any, are we learning from the results of the CA-25? Well, first of all, Tim, John, good to be with you, and glad that you're, you're both well, and uh, privileged to be able to chat with you for a little while. I Look, uh, you know, I'm not all that surprised with a Republican and what looked like is going to be a fairly comfortable Republican victory in that seat. When you have low turnout, which is what these special elections are, and this looks like it might even be like a 40% turnout. We'll, we'll know a little bit more information when they tell us how many ballots are left. It, that's pretty high for a special election. But when you when you shrink the electorate like that, typically what happens in these marginal districts or districts where Democrats have a slight edge, uh, it, it skews it back to Republican. So we knew from the ballots that had been returned that Republicans had about a, a 10% edge, meaning more, you know, the, the electorate skewed plus 10 Republican just by who had returned ballots by election day. They're still, as you noted, they're still, still collect, those that were collected on election day are still, still get to be counted. So it's it's just it skews the the whole electorate, and come November when there's a rematch, same candidates, Smith and Garcia in November, turnout will be, you know, roughly double, maybe not quite that as to what there was th- this week. So that completely changes the electorate, and most of those voters become Democrat. And so it it, it levels out that ten point gap that Republicans, you know enjoyed on this election really go disappears in November. Uh, still be a very competitive seat. Garcia gets an advantage now being an incumbent. Maybe he can hold on to it, but very, very different race lies ahead uh, in November. And if, if I remember right, uh, Clinton took that seat by six points and Katie Hill won it in 2018 by eight points. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's about right. And Gavin Newsom won it by, uh, by around five points. So it has been, yes, yes, Steve Knight, who was the Republican that lost to Hill in 18, was one of these members of Congress that won their seat in 16, even though uh, Trump lost it to Clinton. And then two years later, you know, the reckoning came in that seat. And then, of course, several in Orange County where 
the, the you know they essentially they were Clinton seats in sixteen and then became Democrat congressional seats in in eighteen. Historically, wasn't this pretty much a um, going back over years? This was pretty much a Republican seat, wasn't it? I always it's kind, it's kind of a high desert seat, wasn't not wasn't this Knight seat, Steve Knight? Yeah, Steve Knight had this seat. It's uh, so it's the high desert of L.A. County, right? Lancaster, Palmdale, traditionally rather Republican. You know, s- sweeps down through the oh, you know, kind of the north north of the San Fernando Valley. So Santa Clarita goes over in the Thousand Oaks, Simi Valley, yeah. uh-huh. uh, and it's like you know, like all the suburbs around Los Angeles, including the Orange, including Orange County. It's just been this you know this slow demographic shift. Towards uh, towards Democrats, really for the last couple decades. But yeah, this has been pretty reliable Republican territory for the last at least the last couple decades. Um, once you know Tony Bielinson in the '80s or in the '90s would have had some of this uh, seat the way it was drawn then. But the way it's been drawn for the last couple decades, it's it's been Republican territory. You, you, do you think this is a one-off, or do you think this is a harbinger of things to come? In other districts, uh, Republicans being doing better than people thought, um, or maybe um, being able to gather to gather more support across the board, or is this something peculiar to CA twenty five? Do you think? Well, I I think it's a one off in the respect of what I what I already you know detailed in terms of the turnout just being lower because it's a special election, right? So that aspect of it is one off. However, this seat. And the Orange County seats that you know flipped to Democrats in eighteen, I you know I think they can all be very competitive again in a presidential year where Republicans may be more energized they were than they were in eighteen. Eighteen was this massive classic midterm referendum on the guy in the White House, and uh, Democrats had a lot of energy. We saw a lot of new voters. People really wanted to punish Republicans in these types of districts. These types of voters swing suburban, college educated you know, voters. But but I, you know Republican intensity c- could could pick back up again in in twenty. And I you know it may level some of uh, you know it goes back to turnout mix when we talk about intensity. Some of this may level out, and I still think Republicans can. I think Garcia could get reelected. I think Republicans can. Reclaimed some of those seats in Orange County, so it could be a harbinger of things to come. There was obviously uh, an intensity advantage with the Republicans uh, that we saw. Because I, I think many of us expected Garcia to win, but not by this margin. I know Trump backed him and announced that, and I I sort of think of Trump's name in California as toxic and not helpful. Do you think that? But it, did that help him here, or did he win despite that? Do you think? Well, it, it helped him here in the in this way. I go back to who voted. So you know, I'm pretty confident that this dis, who voted in this dis, in this race in the special election, also the majority would have voted for Donald Trump uh, because it skewed towards Republicans in terms of they you know a larger proportion of them turned out for this. So you know, a special election is a heavy base election. That's why Trump weighs in. That's why it was probably helpful that Trump weighed in. Smith had, you know, all, you know, I think it was Elizabeth Warren and several others, you know, putting out a lot of messages trying to turn out the Democrat base. So, in fact, it's arguable if, if Warren's the right one to really help turn out Democrat base with Democrats in that district. So, uh, it, you know, it, yeah, sure, Trump, Trump was helpful there. I mean, if Trump, if Trump loses this seat again, which I suspect he will, I don't think he probably loses it, 
you know, by more than the, the, the six or seven points he lost it last time. Do you think there's um, uh, an advantage uh, that Republicans can develop, uh, not only here, but I, I think in any seat or even statewide, of going for independence, somehow messaging to independence and trying to recoup those who left the party to become in, or to register as independents. Many left Democrats as well. It, it was bleeding both parties, but it seemed to be bleeding the Republicans more, according to the figures I've seen. Is there a, a way of getting those people back into the fold? Well, you're going to have to win economic, the economic argument. And given the circumstances we're in now, where we went from strong economy to what may be a depression in a matter of 10 weeks, it, there isn't a whole lot of historical reference point to understand who's better positioned to win the economic argument. Uh, it, so, I mean, if Trump and the Republicans are able to you know, prevail on that, I think it gives it gives Republicans an opportunity to, to secure some of those independent type type voters, uh, particularly in these congressional seats. It's also I think it's the only way Trump can get reelected is if, you know, the American people or in, you know, in the five states, six states that matter, you know, ultimately become convinced that 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 Trump is what is going to be needed to get out of the economic ditch. You know, most of the polls I've seen on the general election, on Trump, in fact, all of them except one, actually, have um, Biden over Trump in a theoretical matchup of three or four points ahead, within the margin of error ahead, eight or nine points ahead or more. But there was one a couple days ago by MTurk, and I'm not familiar with them at all and don't know. I haven't ever seen any results before about them and don't know much about them. But they had Trump over Biden by just outside the margin of error, I think it was four points. Do you, do you have any notion about that poll? Have you heard about that? And d does it strike you as this is, again, this is nationally. Um, does that make sense from what you've seen, numbers you've seen? No, I think, I mean, I'd be highly suspect of that. I mean, Biden is going to win the popular vote, just like Clinton won the popular vote four years ago. It's just, it's really a, a question of by what type of margin and, you know what that means in in competitive battleground states, which, as we know, California is not one of those. But Biden, no, Biden's going to win a, the 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 popular the popular vote. He just he you know he needs to probably win it in some type of proportion of you know over three million by over three million votes or so for this for things to be lining up well for him in the Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, Wisconsin. Um, mix of where this, uh, you know, the Rust Belt, where this is likely to be decided. You think he gets a vice president from the Midwest or the Rust Belt? Uh, I Obviously, one of the people in the mix is Kamala Harris, although I don't know if how strong that would be, but I saw a little Willie Brown piece where he didn't even mention her name, I think came out for Globachar. Do, do you have some notion about his VP pick? <laughs> Well, I, I have an opinion. For this yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think there's there's two there's two analyses going on. Um, one one is does Biden need the shore up base, which right now would be young voters who don't appear all that enthusiastic about uh, about someone a couple generations away from them, um, or do you make a pick that's a little more more moderate, aimed at those Midwest states, and can help secure 
this suburban college-educated coalition of voters that gave the Democrats the House in 2018. Uh-huh. Well, you know, as a Republican who'd like to see something more centrist, and I think it's the way you, you win big national elections, is we'll try to broaden your coalition. So I, I've, I wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post a few weeks ago arguing for Klobuchar uh, for this reason. I also think she's safe. People already know her. She's gaff-proof. She's vetted. You know, all those, all those things. Minnesota's arguably in play where she's from. So there's that, but there's now, yeah, there's also, though, within the Democrat Party and the progressive wing, more of a push towards, well, they need, either need diversity, enter Harris, uh, or you need something much more progressive, enter Warren. Uh, I think, though, for, for Biden, he runs a real risk of turning off available voters, um, again, in those suburbs all around the country where, that elected Democrats two years ago to Congress if he does something like Harris or or, or Warren. I think Klobuchar would, would make a lot more sense, would be ultimately very safe. And at the end of the day, young Democrat voters may say they are not enthusiastic about Joe Biden, but I yeah. think their, their feelings about Donald Trump are going to get them to the polls. So you're not, you're completely discounting, yeah, Stacey Abrams is completely uh, off your chart? I there. think so. I mean, you, <laughs> I think, you, you know, usually they say VP, VP picks don't matter, but when the nominee's 79 and there's a deadly virus, uh, sweeping the globe, I think the pick has to be presidential ready. And at the end of the day, Stacey Abrams is a state legislator from Georgia. Um, and, I, you know, you know what, what presidential is in the age of Trump, you know, maybe it's a fair question that our, form, our, our old notions of what looks presidential may be out the window. But I think voters would not have a lot of confidence that she would be a vice president that has the uh, the experience uh, to be ready to serve immediately. Do you think there are any um, vice presidential pick that really turns voters off? Uh, like in California, if he, uh, I don't know, picked an Abrams or pick somebody else who's been mentioned. Uh, he's already said he's going to pick a woman. Uh, is there a particularly bad presidential, vice presidential contender that if he added, to the t- he added that person to the ticket, California would say, oh, no, we're not doing Biden. We're going to go somewhere else or not vote. John, I'm going to weigh in on here. You, he could nominate a two-day-old loaf of bread, and California would still vote for Biden. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think I, I'd concur with uh, with Tim's theory on that. I, I again, I think it's about Rust Belt states. So you know, the aforementioned Stacey Abrams, I think, would be that type of pick that history may chalk up as you know comparable to. Uh, <clears throat> to uh, to others that have you know fallen short or created their own controversies, she, she would be controversial. Um, she's not from the Rust Belt. Um, it just it just it doesn't it just doesn't make any sense. I think I think that would be a huge a huge mistake. There's a lot of you know picks that I don't know if would qualify as yeah. quote unquote mistakes, but uh, some candidates seem to look pretty good backwards. You know, the for the vice presidential pick seemed to look pretty good. And then in the campaign, I'm thinking of Tom Eagleton and Geraldine Ferraro uh, for, for a couple, where they develop their own baggage after the campaign starts. And when you get a lot of people, a lot of reporters covering a campaign and start digging out background about the candidates, it really it shoots the main the presidential contender in the foot. And I don't know about Amy Globachar. She's been she's run for president, so I, I assume that she's been pretty well vetted. Although, you know, it's it, it's you know it's hard to say. And it may, that may be true. I think Warren has been 
probably better vetted than and had more close scrutiny than Globachar, but um, oftentimes a VP candidate is sort of a mystery until you actually get into the rough and tumble of the campaign and, you know, info starts coming out often from Apple research folks. You know, and sometimes there's this tendency to go for, you know, something new, you know, Dan Quayle, Sarah Palin. Uh, I forgot and, about and Dan that Quayle. often does. <laughs> Yeah, well, it often doesn't go well because you have to roll these people out to the public. And I, I would suggest that in this environment of COVID, there, you know, the Biden campaign doesn't have the luxury of like a fresh new face. Um, if, if they did, I think there's some governors like Governor Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island who I think would really be interesting. Um, but there's, there's no time for the country to get to know somebody. No Whit- thought on Gretchen Whitmer, the uh, Michigan governor. I've heard her name bandied. Yeah, Whit- Whitmer's name came up. You know, my concern about, about Whitmer, and frankly, this then would go for any governor, is, and maybe we could transition to Gavin on this maybe, but is that all these governors have been really popular, but they're about to have to make really hard, tough decisions um, about reopening and how to do it. And then their budgets have massive deficits and they're about to cut like crazy. They really have nowhere to go from these soaring heights except down. And so I just think, I think Whitmer, Whitmer would be a risk. Um, she, she, she very well could be underwater in terms of popularity in, in Michigan, you know, come election day. And so I, I just don't see why, why Biden would have to take that risk. That's what, that is the advantage of the, you know, the three we've been talking about, that ran for president already. They're already known. They're already vetted. Um, they're they're experienced in the campaign. They're less likely to make mistakes. So, I, I do think be, between Harris and Warren and Klobuchar, I think you're likely to see the pick be one of those three. How about uh, this? Has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about. But I'm always interested in asking people on the podcast, especially political pros and strategists how it's going working out of your house. It just seems to me this is a profession, you know, where, where you do a lot of one-on-one and meet people and you talk in cafes and you go to dinners, and there, but there's a lot of face-to-face interaction. But that a lot of that, I think, is by the board now. I mean, there's Zoom out there now, I guess, to do all this, um, you know, virtually. But how's that affected you, uh, if at all? I don't know. It's, you know, I'll say it hasn't, uh, it hasn't affected... Uh, it hasn't affected the way we do business a lot at this point. I mean, there is a lot of social aspect. You know, in-person meetings are certainly better than Zoom meetings. And, um, you know, real get-togethers in bars and saloons are better than Zoom happy hours, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> definitely. Uh, we human, can attest to that human, at Capital Weekly, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, hu- human contact and relationship is important in the business of politics. Where I'm really hearing it more from are my friends that are lobbyists because they are literally shut off from that contact with legislators and their staff. And I think uh, several of them, I think, are having difficulty trying to figure out how to do their job without being able to look a legislator in the eye and ask for a vote. Uh, So I think there's I think it's really having a big impact on lobbyists for sure. Do you think it'll have a, an impact uh, on legislation? I, this really is a question for a lobbyist, but do you think that lack of direct and mano-a-mano communication is going to have any impact on what gets out and what doesn't get out of the legislature as it relates to you know, lobbyist clients or lobbyist interests? 
Well, I think it, I think it certainly could. Um, I think you may be more likely to see bills go for up for a vote without it being clear if the votes are there. So vote counts may be a little more difficult to come by. We may have a little more uh, real-time action as votes are taken on floors or even on, in committees uh, as to whether the as to whether bills you know survive or, or not. Um, I'm sh- I think there'll be a lot of circumstances like that that are that are going to be that are going to be noticed um, just because of the lack of c- contact and communication. How about the campaigns? Uh, we were talking with Paul Mitchell a while back, and he said, um, whereas before you might have like a boiler room or a bank of phones with the staffers and the volunteers getting together and making their calls uh, and a lot of activity and interaction. Now you don't. You have campaign volunteers holed up in their homes making these kinds of calls and sort of working you know, from the outside in. Is that Does that make a difference, do you think, or does that have any impact? And when we look at November, what's going to happen in November, does that have any effect on that, do you think? I think it it can. I mean, campaigning is going to have to change in some regards in that, you know, as Paul was describing, there won't be phone banks. Uh, but, the, you know, the technology has existed for some time for people to be able to essentially phone bank from home uh, with computer programs that, that basically feed you the call list and call from your own phone. So technology overcomes that. Culturally, some of that's already begun to shift. Obviously, door-to-door type canvassing and campaigning. Um, what you have to be careful with, my guess is it will still take place, but will be done, you know, with respectful types of distancing, probably find fewer people willing to come to the door unless you dress like an Amazon delivery man. Uh, there, you <laughs> know, there's, hazmat suit or something. <laughs> <hazmat>, right. <laughs> I, you're going to see, you're going to see people experimenting with, you know, uh, digital town hall type ideas, um, more of the maybe maybe more teletown halls, which is something we've been using for well over a decade. You know, basically, a big conference phone call. So campaigns will find you know candidates will find their way the best they can. What doesn't change is, you know, we're going to still send direct mail. We're still going to do TV advertising, uh, digital advertising, which arguably the statistics are you know are showing it will probably be more effective than ever because so many people are now on screens more than they have been. So I, there's still going to be a lot of ways to get the, the message out. The interesting thing will be striking the right tone. I mean, obviously, we don't know what the state of the impact of the disease is going to be come, come the fall. But if it's, if it's grim, you know, it's a difficult circum, you know, environment to campaign in. And you, you're going to have to really be sensitive uh, to, what is, to what is going on. I think the um, door-to-door campaigning is interesting. Leaving the door hangers and knocking and canvassing the neighborhoods is interesting. Actually, I thought about it. You're right. If they if a social distancing is observed, I think neighbors and rel- and uh, you know homeowners and city dwellers, even no matter where they are, would be, I think, okay with that if if they answer the door. So I guess the question is, do they go to the door uh, or not answer any? Unless they think it's an Amazon delivery person or something. I feel like lately I'm <laughs> right. subsidizing Amazon and I get three knocks on the door. And when I go to the door, nobody's there, but there's a package there. You know? so, uh, then you're, know. you're not ordering enough wine, John, because they need your signature. So <laughs> they wouldn't just leave it. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned TV and I'm interested in that because I'm watching more of it now than I did before. At least I'm watching movies on Hulu and Netflix. And, uh, and I saw a story the other day that said, um, 
Netflix was just happy, a happy little buckaroo because Netflix had their their um, traffic going up 25%, I think was the was the figure. And people basically watching more, binge-watching shows and going to Netflix. The story I saw ranked the shows according to most popular. And the most popular one, believe it or not, was The Golden Girls. So immediately I started watching The Golden Girls. And I have to tell you, I think it's pretty well written. I think it's pretty good. <laughs> and of course, they seem so young now to me. <laughs> so it was actually pretty good. Well, in, in comparison to our uh, leading presidential candidates, they are positively youthful. They are, absolutely. <laughs> right. um, so, how's, you're, so you're the strategy guy. So how does this affect you? Uh, I mean, you know, how do you advise clients and campaigns when everybody is holed up watching television? How do you get through to them? Is this all TV ads? Is, uh, you know, how does that work? Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of TV ads, but again, digital, because people are on their, their phones and pads a lot uh, as well. Uh, they're still checking mail. You know, mail's always been fairly uh, effective, even though everyone says they, they hate it. The, the TV advertising is interesting because it's, right, we, I mean, there's increasingly streaming is supplanting, you know, broadcast and, and cable. Fortunately, you know, we we get a lot of good data on all that, and, and political can purchase into streaming. You can't get into Netflix because it's subscription only, but, you know, services like Hulu or if you're going to watch a stream something on ESPN, um, wherever you may be streaming, you can you can get ads placed there, and you can target them fairly effectively. And then in this environment, what happens is is that news ratings actually are pretty healthy, and so you know, new cable news um, and local news become a pretty reliable place to still find uh, to find voters. Um, and then, yeah, we'll see what you know. We'll see what Arbit. We'll we'll have we'll have you know, new ratings before we start making all of our purchases in the fall. But data, data really feeds the beast on this and it allows for TV and streaming uh, to be purchased pretty, pretty effectively. You know, there was a time where, um, not that long ago, I think, where, where the most valuable places to air your ads, the time slots for your ads, television ads, was Monday Night Football in or around before or after Monday Night Football or during the program and local news, which was basically a 5.30 to 6.30 slot. Um, but there's so much out there now that has little to do with broadcast. Cable is all over the place. You can get any shows you want off any special streaming service. So I'm just wondering, can you track it? Can you track the responses uh, as closely as you used to do, or is it easier to track them now? I know you mentioned cable. Is it as easy or easier to do that now, do you think, or is it harder to well, know who you're actually reaching? Yeah, knowing who you're reaching, you have good insight into. The, the, the problem is, is it's, what, it's what you're describing is how um, diverse and narrow cast all these audiences are. So you're right, Monday Night Football used to be um, the highest rated show in America, and it was, you, you kind of knew a quarter, of, you know, or a fifth of the country was watching this one show. That just doesn't exist anymore. I think the, uh, I'll get the numbers a little bit wrong, but the, the, the point will be made. It's like, you know, Johnny Carson's final show had an audience, I want to say around 50 million, and, and, and then uh, Jay's last show, his sign off, had like 13 million. It's like, you know, it, 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 appointment television, where you knew you had the country's attention all at once, you know, has really not been around for 
25, 30 years. And it just gets more and more and more segmented. So the prop, the challenge for campaigns is we can, you know, we can find the tar- we can tar- we can target how we want, but we have to. We don't have to get the frequency. It's hard to get someone to see the ad enough times, uh, which is really why you kind of, you you try to combine these strategies of making sure that they're seeing it like on cable TV, but also also online video with you know we call it the pre roll the the ad that runs before the video you want to watch of of cats and dogs or what have you. So it's, it all has to be combined to, to get enough of, a, of frequency um, in front of, in front of voters. That has, that's a challenge. That, that has become a, a, a real challenge. Is, is there still a challenge of um, running a particular ad so many times at the point? It costs a lot of money and, you're, and it's so pervasive and there's so much of it. We see this almost in every campaign, I think, where there's a tipping point. Where you do it too much and people just kind of turn off and they, you, you get more negative vibes than you would if you just ran it a few times in, more selectively. I don't know. Is that still a problem? Yeah, no, I think that's an issue. We see that in consumer advertising too, right? I mean, there's all these – there's frequently commercials, um, especially in the, you know, around the insurance or, or beverage space where it's like, okay, you know, I've seen this enough. Um, you, you do get tired to it and start to have an adverse reaction. That absolutely can happen in politics too. We, you know, we call it once there's enough. You know, we have formulas of rating points, etc. To, to know that an ad has quote unquote been burned in, and then yeah, there's fatigue. You, you do want to rotate your message to something else. You need to freshen the creative, as we'll say. How often in advance? I mean, how much in advance do you have to book those ads? I mean, if you have to book them two or three months in advance, you really you're sort of betting on the come. You don't know what's going to be happening, say, in, in November, if you have to book the ad in August. It's, it's kind of a crapshoot. Is that, is that a problem? Well, yeah. It's, uh, well, it's so, you know, the, the, the advertising time's a commodity, like anything else. So you, if you reserve it early, you can get better price and you can get what you want, so to speak. It's like, think about uh-huh. like buying airfare. Uh, it's like an airline seat. Uh, and if you're going to do it last minute, you might pay more and you might be sitting in the middle instead of at the window where you want to be type of thing. So there's campaigns now that have already reserved millions of dollars, particularly on the initiative side, um, for, for the fall. And then the creative, you know, submitting the actual ad is, is something, if it's broadcast, you literally can do, you know, the, the, the day before, uh, some of the cable systems uh, Rob, a little bit longer. Let me ask you just one last question, um. Uh, it's really a general question, but it's sort of the subtext to a lot of issues out there now. The future of the Republicans in California is an overwhelmingly, obviously, Democratic state by voter registration is up as it's never been. <coughs> Democrats are up second in place, I think, of the independents and then the Republicans. But the Republicans used to be quite strong in California. Is there any shot at going back to those good old days? Are we looking at a permanent change of landscape in California, do you think? Well, I think, I, you know, I, I now answer that question is, in, well, what's the Republican Party nationally now in the age of, of Trump? Um, I mean, I'm a re- Republican that feels like I've been hijacked by some guy that's not a conservative. and I didn't vote for him four years ago, not going to vote for him again. So, you know, the Trump, a Trump Republican Party, no. I don't know how you start rebuilding in California. Uh, we can all go down the reasons, right? It's probably yeah. under, we understand what they are, but 
But in terms of the state itself, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity uh, for someone who's more centrist to provide some alternative views of governing than what the majority is in, in Sacramento. I just, I'm not so sure that doesn't become a different type of Democrat, someone that's more moderate. Maybe it's a independent, but you got to be your own strong brand to really pull that off. So I, I think there's going to be some type of need to pull back towards the center. Um, with, then from the, the, the progressive momentum, especially that's come in with Newsom, who's running for president. Um, but I don't, I don't know that it'll be Republican. I, I tend to think the moment might belong to, to, to someone else who's uh, either independent or, or even Democrat. Great. Rob, fair enough. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, usual. It's very interesting. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Sure, Julie. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you very much, Rob. And we will see you folks next time around. Thanks a lot.